my friend. Welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. As the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and bring you to me. I trust your journey from London has been a happy one, and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, D. Hello, and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, Season 2 Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm the other co-host, Brian Connolly. All right, we are into 90s Coppola post-Godfather. All done with the Godfather, (laughs) sort of. (laughs) More or less. Uh, He will revisit it as we talked about in the last episode, recutting, redoing part three. And also there's that new show on right now called The Offer, which uh, is a Paramount Plus show about... The making of The Godfather, sort of. Told of. from the experiences of producer uh, Al Ruddy. Yes. And uh, we're not going to really talk about it. I know that you've seen the first two episodes. You know I've seen the first two. But we're going to save that and do a special episode where we just talk about that as soon as the show wraps. So we'll be all caught up in and hopefully the week the show ends, which is next month, like the middle of June, I think. We'll have a nice The Offer episode. But until then, our lips are sealed. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, check it out. It's on Paramount+. Plus. I feel like it had a lot of hype, and then it came out and nobody cared, or nobody I know has seen it, other than a small handful of people. Uh, Yeah, that's that's the impression I got. Um, From watching the first two episodes, I'll say, uh, I'll say I think it's worth checking out. Even if you're not a huge Godfather fan, in fact, I think the big Godfather fans, the people that like love the Godfather and quote all the lines, are not who this show is really for. Like it, I don't know that that person <laughs> is going to be interested in in the offer. But if you like movies about making movies or stuff about Hollywood history, if you liked Robert Evans's audio book, the Kid Stays in the Picture, or the documentary, uh, there's stuff in there that I think makes it worth checking out. So far, again, we're two episodes in. <laughs> it might all totally fall apart. My hope is, because I guess it's ten hours long, it's ten episodes, my hope is that he's go through all three movies... And then go through him doing the director's cuts <laughs> of them. And then it ends with them making the offer. Well, you know, there's, <laughs> there's already a lot of unnecessary uh, storylines. but I've... It feels like it's moving fast, though. I'm like, how can... Like, it feels like they're going to be done making The Godfather by episode five. But who knows? Like, maybe it'll start going into some minutia of detail of the making of... But right now... I feel like they've gone through like five years and two hours, it feels like. They technically have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll save it. We'll save it. We'll save it. But We'll save it and we'll, it'll be a great surprise. And it's new to both of us. Yes. It's new to everybody. So that'll be fun. But today we are doing Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. That is the correct title <laughs> of the movie. Um, though I, though my, my wife did point out the correct pronunciation of Dracula is La Coolia. Oh, is that, that's the... Uh, Transylvania. So we're having uh, wine. Red wine, of course, you have to. You have to. Though Dracula doesn't drink 
wine. Uh, and we're doing one we've had before, so I don't need to read the whole thing, but we're doing the uh, Francis Coppola Diamond Collection 2018 Black Label Claret. This is really good. We just both ate a whole pizza each, and I feel this is a good, great way to... It was, it was a thick crust pizza, very bready. <laughs> great way to end it. The meals with a nice, refreshing glass of red wine and a from a nice decanter, the kind of thing. Oh uh, yeah! So this is our first time using this. I got this for Christmas. It's just a really cool, fancy decanter. It's it's got a really wide bottom, so that way a lot of air touches the wine. Uh, we had another decanter before this, and I broke it because the problem is decanters are fragile and fancy, and you use it when you're drinking alcohol, and then. I don't know about you, but I get a little clumsy when I drink a little bit of alcohol, so I was clumsy one night, broke the decanter, but here's a new one. And uh, I think it's doing the job. This wine is tasting very good. And then it looks quite stylish. Yeah, it fits in with the movie. It's a very dark red. Uh, I feel we've been drinking more whites, and it makes sense because it's Texas, it's summer, it's hot, but Dracula, you gotta have a red wine. You gotta, you gotta have a red wine. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films The World is Wrong About. Available on Paperhouse Network wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> So whose turn is it to tell the story of Dracula? I believe it's your turn. It is my turn. And this will be, in my mind, easy because the movie more or less follows the book for the most part. Yeah. So it's a very familiar story, so I don't think you have to go into the minutiae of detail. No, that, but we'll get into the, the well, details yeah, but, in our discussion. And is there anyone on Earth who doesn't know the story of Dracula? Maybe, but give, give us the Cliff's Notes. Give us the Francis Ford Coppola's <laughs> Cliff's Notes, Bram Stoker's Dracula. All right. Constantinople has fallen. <laughs> Muslim Turks are invading Europe. Okay, that's I, I won't go that far back. That's a bit of Anthony Hopkins's uh, narration of the prologue. Now, I'll say this movie does start with a prologue explaining who Prince Vlad Dracul is. Who's a Romanian warrior prince who fought off invading Turks. A real person. Real person. And. His wife believes that he has died. She commits suicide. He's told that she is damned to hell because she has killed herself. And he says, this is my reward for defending God's kingdom. And he curses God. He stabs a cross. He stabs a crucifix uh, in the church altar and makes the whole church bleed and <laughs> swears that he'll come back from his death to use the forces of darkness to avenge, take his revenge. And that's how he becomes a vampire. And you don't get that legend, <laughs> it, how he becomes a vampire in any no, other no. telling. He just is Dracula already. Yeah. So this is the first, this is the, that, that's sort of the first big thing in the movie of like, oh, this is very different than other Draculas before this. Going into the Vlad the Impaler story. Cut to the Dracula we know. Jonathan Harker, young English real estate attorney or clerk. I don't know what he is, really. He's sent to Transylvania to close a real estate deal 
uh, Count Dracula has bought land all over London. He's got to get signatures. But then spooky stuff starts happening. Dracula traps him in the castle. Dracula goes to London to put the moves on Mina, Harker's fiance. But first he attacks and kills Lu- Mina's friend Lucy, who uh, was... Uh, has like three suitors. She has all these men just falling <laughs> yeah, over themselves. Yeah, it's, it's uh, some handsome, rich British man, a Texan, and a kind of a kooky doctor who works in an insane asylum. He works in an insane asylum with Renfield, the original realtor for Dracula, who went insane. Why? No one really knows. It's not really explained. We'll talk about that more, possibly. There's a lot to talk about, and not a lot of it makes sense. <laughs> uh, so Harker escapes. He goes back to London. They all team up. Uh, they destroy Dracula's uh, hideout, so he has to go back to Transylvania. They chase him back to Transylvania. There's a big showdown. They're like the most action-packed Dracula showdown. <laughs> uh, they kill him, and uh, in the departure from the book, then uh, Mina and... Count Dracula, they have a moment together uh, alone as Dracula's dying, and she uh, she is the one that finishes him off. And then Dracula is like forgiven, or his his curse is lifted, and his soul is finally at peace there in the church where he uh, began his vampiric journey. They're very good at job. There you go. That's Drac- Bram- Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Man, where to even begin on this movie? I feel there's so many way, ways in. Um, because, uh, I mean, I, I remember when this movie came out. I remember it being a big deal. This was 1992. And it was a big deal because there hadn't been really a Dracula in a, in a while. The last kind of big one before it was the Frank Langella one from the late 70s, which follows the book pretty closely. But since, like, after that, all you really had was kind of more jokey Draculas. You had the Monster Squad. You had kind of more of a Halloween sort of Dracula. Um, uh, what was the George Hamilton? Uh, oh, <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> the, uh, they, Love um, at First Bite, I think. Love at First Bite. Yeah, the uh, 80s tried uh, to revive or... Vampires were in the 80s. Like, you had Fright Night and stuff. But Dracula was kind of more not really around consensus was they had been done to death like yeah what can you do there was all the universal classic ones there were all the hammer films with christopher lee then there was a franklin jello one there was some bbc ones that never really made it over here to america yeah and then um then there was Werner herzog's nosferatu Nosferatu, yeah which is very different and very good and very Herzogian and very Klaus yeah. Kinski, very arty and beautiful. And that was that was your alternative, like, okay, yeah. like uh, I don't want him to wear a cape and be like, <laughs> I don't drink wine. Like like, like give me like an arty and that, moody. That came Dracula. out around the same time as Langella when I think those are both late seventies and the Frank Langella one, uh, who plays Dracula, that one is kind of was known for being like this is the most truest to the book. Like I'm, my mom's a big Dracula fan, and that was her always her go-to one was ah oh, the Franklin Jello the Franklin Jello Dracula like that's the most like the book it's so romantic and sexy and scary and so I think people thought like 
Dracula's done. You have your most accurate to the book. You have your Werner Herzog alternate crazier, you know, weird arty version. Done. What else can you do with yeah, Dracula? You've got the creepy <laughs> silent Nosferatu. You've got Bela Lugosi is covered. You did it all. Except kind of not really because none of these versions of Dracula follow the book. Exactly. They, they don't. Yeah. either follow the play which the Bela Lugosi, uh, Todd Browning directed Dracula is based on, which itself is n- not very closely based on the book. There's a lot of stuff that's just made up, characters condensed, and it's all... If you watch the classic Dracula, it's a lot of people standing on place, pointing off camera, saying something is happening, because <laughs> that's how it works in a play. <laughs> and uh, Coppola, his background with Dracula was he read the book he, as a kid, he liked it, and then one day he found, as a, when he was still a kid, found out that Dracula was a real person. <laughs> that Prince Vlad <laughs> Tepish you know, was a real person. And it was like this big thing, like, oh my God, like, Dracula was a real person? Why don't people talk about this? <laughs> and having read the book, you know, like, he just knew, like, none of these Dracula movies have followed the book, really. Wouldn't it be nice if one day someone made a movie covering the book? And the real person. And the real so you're person. combining both the the book and the, the the tale of Vlad the Impaler, and I guess this came to his doorstep via Winona Ryder. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, long, but, conti- continuing off of from Godfather Three, where Winona Ryder was supposed to play Mary Corleone, um, but had to drop out because she was suffering from exhaustion. I think exhaustion, said. physical, yeah. mental exhaustion. After Godfather 3 is out, she wanted to have a meeting with Coppola just to, like, hey, no hard feelings, you know, sorry. Uh, Not really sorry, but just make sure that there's no hard feelings. Yeah. And she was putting together or part of this new Dracula that had already, was already going. The script was already written by James V. Hart, and she brought it with her to the meeting and like, oh, hey, like, by the way, I'm in this Dracula movie. Here's the script. Would you want to read it? Maybe direct it? And so he reads it. And what he's really caught by is that it's the story of Prince Vlad, like the historical figure. And it follows the book pretty closely, <laughs> at least in terms of plot. Yeah. And characters. There's characters in this version that have not been in any other yeah. version that were from the book. And so he decides, like, yeah, I'm all in. Also, he still has some debts to pay off. Zoetrope still, still, still in the negative, in the red. Yeah. Uh, Godfather Three was supposed to pull it out, but I think it wasn't quite as huge as he had hoped it would be. Yeah, he needed another yeah. another hit. Yeah. And uh, spoiler alert: This movie was a hit. Huge! It was a huge hit. It was everywhere. It like was a huge part of '90s culture, and Definitely. I say I say that its influence is still felt today. In, yeah. Certainly in vampire movies, and what we do in the shadows has some nods to. Definitely. Has to this yeah. to this Dracula this, specifically. This was the first one to do. Yeah, to get rid of the cape and stuff. And as American adaptations go, and have a, have a whole new look, and that look became iconic, like the look that Gary Oldman has uh, first as the old old Dracula, where he has like his hair cut up in these weird like double 
Buns, buns or something yeah. in this red outfit, and that was definitely parodied a lot. Like in The Simpsons, Mr. Burns dresses Mr. Burns dressed that way. Like that uh, was Sinbad such... does a whole Sinbad the comedian, not the sailor. Uh, <laughs> the comedian did a whole bit on how ridiculous Dracula's hair is, and it's hilarious. <laughs> and then the uh, young, back to being a young man, Dracula kind of, I feel kind of. Inspired a lot of like goth people and people in real life to dress uh, a certain way, like he, with the with the tinted sun little sunglasses and sort of the goatee and the long hair, top hat, long like very steampunky sort of look. Like it yeah. feels very much like you could go to a corner of Portland or Brooklyn and find multiple dudes that look like that this. look like that, saying things <laughs> like "I've crossed oceans of time to find you." So it's it's very '90s in a way. It also kind of it looks kind of grungy. Like his look looks like kind of like I can imagine like a Chris Cornell or a bass player in Pearl Jam or, some, <laughs> or Alice in Chains. Like it, it kind of it has this '90s thing, but it's also very iconic and long lasting. Uh, and also, this was just a big deal because very rarely are there prestige horror films. Like, that's kind of like usually horror is thrown in the gutter or considered lesser. And other than like <clears throat> The Exorcist or The Shining, you know, you don't really get these big, lavish, big production, big actors in a horror film. And so, this was definitely, I think, a landmark in terms like that kind of thing, which. There aren't a lot of. Like having a real director like Coppola, like the director of The Godfather is adapting Dracula, uh, was pretty special at the time. It really was, especially coming off of like Godfather 3. Like his name was back out there in the public, uh, in the public eye with a, the association of the Godfather movies. You know, yeah. like maybe people like didn't think Godfather 3 measured up, they didn't like it. But hey, you can't not associate Coppola with the original Godfather and the original <laughs> Godfather 2. So that was stirring out there. And this movie was a big enough success that he was able to uh, pay off his debts. Finally. he finally. finally. It took him, what, 12 years? Yeah. Or however long. When was One from the Heart? That like was 1980. 82 yeah. by the time it was released. So yeah, he finally got out of it. So this is, I guess... You could say the end of the debt pain back phase of his career. Yeah, and, and that it, at first seems like what this project is. Like it's already put together. The script is already written. And Coppola, as we learned from going through the early part of his uh, filmography, was a writer. And every movie he directed, he had a hand in the shaping of the script. But with this one, not so much. The script is just... Sort of as is by James, by James V. Hart. He did have to declare bankruptcy, but it's it, ha, it like was the most uh, ideal way to declare bankruptcy. He was able to actually do the thing that bankruptcy is supposed to allow you to do to restructure your payments. So now everyone's gonna get their money, and you get to keep your assets. And and hey, it worked out. And it was Dracula that did it. Who would have thought? <laughs> Uh, it was a hit. Like it was definitely a gamble, I think, to invest into this movie, and it's a bit clearly a big budget movie. It was like, and this movie was really advertised and pushed. I mean, you couldn't escape it back in '92, but it paid off. Like the, clearly, the early '90s audiences really wanted a really good Dracula. 
I mean, this is around the time that Anne Rice was really popular. Um, and I think it was just it was just the right moment, the right time to bring it bring it back. And the Anne Rice style of vampires, like so Interview with a Vampire doesn't become a movie until two years later in ninety four. Yeah. And that's its own glorious film. <laughs> uh but Interview with the Vampire, the novel was from published in like '79, like late '70s, and then you know she continued the Vampire Chronicles and the story of Lestat, and so that moody vampire, that like kind of sympathetic, sexy moody vampire, yeah, was out there in the public, and this Dracula, like capitalized on that, was the first real first one, uh, yeah. uh, feature film presentation of that style of vampire like yeah yeah Bela Lugosi had this uh like he was gonna try to like hypnotize you and seduce you and Christopher Lee definitely had this uh this presentation like he was a seducer and he was very uh dangerous you know because he's like six five yeah so he just naturally felt like he could beat the shit out of you without using (laughs) vampire powers (laughs) yeah uh, but and this Dracula was the the moody, the sexy but moody, more romantic. Yeah, uh, there's definitely more. I think more of a love story in here than you see in a lot of the other Draculas. Like it actually, or it actually works. Um, yeah, and, and uh, I, yeah, I did. I, I guess this. Let's talk about the the cast. Let's go into the cast before we go into sort of the the look and feel of the movie because this has quite. The high caliber cast, as most Coppola movies do. Um, Gary Ullman, of course, is Dracula, and this was kind of before he was like super famous. Like, he was already, I feel, well regarded as an actor by now, as a young actor in like Mike Lee movies, and he was Sid Vicious, and he was Lee Harvey Oswald and the JFK a year before. And but this was, I think, the first time I remember a Hollywood movie having him as the star. And Pavi's on the poster, right? Like this feels like this is like the big break for him in terms of American for American audiences. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The before this, he had yeah, he's Lee Harvey Oswald and JFK, which is not a big role. If you haven't seen JFK, uh, yeah, yeah, he's not a big character in it. He's very good in as Lee Harvey Oswald in those. Scenes. I agree. He's very good. And then he was in like Henry and June and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, State of Grace, uh, and stuff I've never heard of in the 80s. But uh, yeah, so he was one of those casting choices that was, it was good. I think it was the right one, but it was a gamble in the studio. It was like, what? Like Gary Oldman. Because he could have had a much bigger star, probably for Dracula, like someone who was already more cemented. Especially this, like Gen X Dracula. He's got Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves, famous British actor Keanu Reeves. (laughs) (laughs) There's a good part of the Wikipedia page for this movie about how Keanu Reeves is all miscast. (laughs) So to me, like Keanu Reeves in this. Is talked about and looked about at in the same way that Sofia Coppola was for Godfather Three. It's definitely like when this movie's talked about, a lot of people instantly want to zero in on this person's performance and shit all over it. And yes, he can't quite get the accent, just like he couldn't quite do it in Much Ado About Nothing. But I don't care. 
I think he's very charismatic. I really love him, and I think people just pick on him a lot. And yeah, maybe he, you know, he was really popular at the time. This is like you know Bill and Ted era, uh, like uh, my own private Idaho. He's like people love him. Women have crushes on him, uh, you know. And I feel like he's probably offered these movies, and they I may mean, not even think about whether he was good for or not, but just like, well, this will get people in. This will get women to see it because they love Keanu Reeves. And yeah, he can't quite get a. He's not like he has that. Just like Sofia Coppola, they have a very Southern California way of talking. And I guess that's kind of hard to shake for some, some people that get rid of all the ways to say those words. But I think that, like, if you look beyond the accent, his performance in this, just like in Much Ado, Much Ado About Nothing, I think is really good. I think he is a very emotive actor. I think he, it's all about just, like, his face. Like, you really instantly sympathize with him, I feel. I've always been a strong defender of Keanu, and I feel time and time again he's become, like, a joke or a meme. And only recently have people all kind of embraced that they love him, like, post-John Wick or whatever. But what, what is your take on him in this movie? I think him and Winota both don't quite get the accent. She does it much better than he does. And yes, it would have been better if both of them were British actors. <laughs> and yes, it's hard to have these people acting with Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins, two of the great <laughs> British you know, performers. But it doesn't take me out of the movie. It doesn't ruin the movie for me. No, it does not for me either. I think, uh, dare I say... He works. He works as the way this movie needs him to work. And yeah, with the accent, sure. But in fairness, everyone's accent in this movie is insane. <laughs> Everyone talks crazy. <laughs> How so? Break it down for me. So you've got Gary Oldman with his the many voices of Dracula. There's Anthony Hopkins... Is playing Van Helsing like a wild, uh, frisky Dutchman who may or may not have <laughs> mystical powers. We'll get into that maybe. His accent is crazy. Uh, you have, yeah, so Keanu Reeves, really trying a British accent. You have Winona Ryder kind of pulling it off, but sounds a bit more like she will in uh, Little Women, where it's just like American people were kind of British. Or like Age of Innocence. Yeah. <clears throat> Just yeah. like, I'm so refined, I sound kind of British. Yeah. Uh, Carrie Elwes, to me, has always sounded like he's had a fake British accent. But he is actually British. That was a huge surprise to me. <laughs> when I found out that he was actually British. If you have to do a fake British accent, it's going to sound like Carrie Elwes. <laughs> uh, there, you have uh, the a character that is... Never in any Dracula movie, uh, the Texan Quincy, played by Billy Campbell. Billy Campbell, the Rocketeer. The Rocketeer sounds insane. Not really like Texas not, accent. He doesn't sound anything like us. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not from Texas, but uh, <laughs> he. Uh, well, that character is great. Like in my note, when because I've never read the book of Dracula, so when he that character showed up, I was like, "Is this in the book? This like weird Texan with a Bowie knife, like with a cowboy hat, and a, like just so stereotypical." Like, and yes, that character is in the book, and this is the first time that character's ever been in an adaptation. Not of the only book. is that character in the book, he is the one that kills Dracula. He stabs Dracula through the heart, not with a wooden stake, but with his Bowie knife. 
with his Texan Jim Bowie knife, stabs Dracula through the heart, kills Dracula. Such a cool character. And I don't know if he was ever put in a Dracula again. I think this is literally the only time. And those are some of my favorite parts of this movie is when Van Helsing kind of has his little team. All three of the suitors of Lucy. You have, the, you have this crazy Texan. You have this insane uh, morphine-addicted doctor. And then you have the dashing Carrie Elways. And they're all... Like the scene where they all go to kill Lucy in the, in the crypt or go have witness to see her as a vampire. That scene is great. Yeah. And just seeing them together, I'm like, that should be a TV show. Just like if, we, if, the, if there's a way that they don't like, like where they can stay together and just fight vampires in Europe, uh, that would be an amazing show. <laughs> and the end, like the climax where it's all of them on horses and they're chasing the carriage that has Dracula's coffin. Like it is so exciting and it's so thrilling and it's so fun. It's like true kind of like swashbuckling and like just like, like kind of that sort of old style of action and it's just in this movie it's done so well and those characters are so fun and Richard Grant who plays the doctor looking really handsome and young uh, and also just really fun having a great time uh, all the scenes with him and Renfield in the in the in a sane assembly and Renfield another weird accent because it's Tom Waits with I believe his fifth collaboration with Coppola playing Renfield a great Renfeld, uh, and uh, yeah, what accent is he supposed to have? It yeah, really like I guess sense. Tom Waits is British, kind, kind of sounding British, but he's also very Tom Waitsy. So. How can he not be? Yeah, like that guy gargles razor blades for breakfast. I guess <laughs> to get that voice, but uh, yeah, uh, and and I don't know if you picked up on this, but one of Dracula's brides, Monica Bellucci. Yes. One of her early earliest role, one of her earlier roles, uh, definitely must be her first American film because this is like early '90s, and I didn't really hear about her until the late '90s or yeah, aughts, whenever, like whenever Irreversible came out. Milena came out. So she's um, one of the um, the brides. Also, a very minor character, but um, Harker's boss who sends him to uh, Transylvania. Mr. Hawkins is played by Jay Robinson, who I only, the only other thing I know him from is he narrated a show on the Discovery Channel about like spooky supernatural things <laughs> that happen like that may or may not be true. And, his, and that show was on when I was a kid. I don't remember what it was called. I think it was called like, Would You Believe It? Uh, and it haunted me because the narrator was so scary. Uh, scarier than Robert Stack, even. <laughs> and he's in this movie, and he sounds scary. And it's like, <laughs> like uh, he was a he did a voice, a lot of voice acting. He was like a voice actor in some cartoons, and then he like was uh, Caligula in the Robe, mm. the the epic movie from the fifties, the Robe. Uh, and then he played Caligula again in Demet- Demetrius and the Gladiators. There's something about him that rang Caligula <laughs> to, to Hollywood. This is a great opportunity for you, Harker. But you'll have to leave uh, Transylvania immediately. Opportunities such as this come but once in a lifetime. Yes, of course, sir. If I may inquire, what in fact happened to Mr. Renfield in Transylvania? Nothing. Nothing. Personal problems. Close these transactions, and your future with this firm is assured. Yes, sir. I will give it my full attention. 
And uh, I think it's worth noting this was sort of the height of Winona fever. This is when Winona was like the every man had a every young man had a crush on her, and every director wanted to put her in a movie, and every like every sort of like auteur type filmmaker of the early '90s and late '80s. She was one of the go-to people to put in your like whether you were Tim yeah. Burton or Scorsese or Coppola like you, like Winona Ryder was sort of like interesting and different enough than a normal looking person I think that it was like oh we like this weird tiny kind of gothy pale brunette person let's put her in our films and this for yeah. her was in some ways like her first sort of grown-up role like a non-teen role like she's still playing a young person like and that's something that none of the other adaptations I think really captures that these are all young people mm-hmm. uh, Mina and Lucy are the same age and uh, Lucy jokes about being an old maid unmarried at 21 <laughs> well and, people didn't live as long back, yeah. back then and so and they're all uh, the suitors they're all around the same age of Van Helsing is you know the old wise wise learned professor mm-hmm. uh, but yes yeah, so she before this she had did Mermaids Edward Scissorhands Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael, Great Balls of Fire, Heathers, uh, you know, going back to uh, Beetlejuice and Lucas. And then she does Dracula. And then after this, another period piece where her accent has improved, Scorsese's Age of Innocence. Great then, movie. Then The House of the Spirits. Then back to a sort of a young, a young person movie, uh, Reality Bites, mm-hmm. but a more mature mm-hmm. young person's movie. Then Little Women. Little yeah. Women, How to Make an American Quilt. Uh, so she's, you know, making that transition to more uh, mature characters in more kind of prestige style movies. And if you grew up in the 90s like we did, her and Keanu were sort of a big deal, like, in our lives. Like, we just saw so many things that they were in, and they were just kind of like, I don't know, one of those small handful of people that we just was always excited to see in a, mo- <laughs> in a movie. <laughs> Very Gen Xy about both of them. You know, they both have that very kind of '90s sort of yeah, a counterculture vibe to them. Even if you plop them in a period piece like this, they can't quite shake that element about their of their persona. I feel like it just to but to the success of this film, I feel like that helped make this movie successful. Is that there is something very '90s about this version of Dracula, but also timeless. Because, good transition, of the way Coppola made this movie, which, you know, in the early 90s was sort of the time that CGI really started to be in movies. Like, you have Terminator 2 came out in 91, uh, which was, like, one of the first movies that really used so much CGI, and it's slowly trickling in. Like, next year, in 93, will be Jurassic Park. And so, compu- Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> Is there a lot of CGI in Super Mario Brothers? I don't remember. Yeah, it was like the first movie to have something that was like totally CGI'd when they're like falling through oh. one dimension to another. But so, but this movie, uh, because it took place in 1897, Coppola had this great idea that I'm sure made the producers and studio pull their hair out that he would only do visual effects that were around in 1897 and nothing beyond that was allowed. (laughs) And so, of course, 
movies were maybe what two years old at this point in 1897. Uh, yeah, I think I think the train I think the train pulled into the station in 1896. This is to me what makes this movie so Coppola. This is like kind of like the thing we've seen him trying to do and failing in One from the Heart or succeeding it in little bits in Peggy Sue Got Married and in Tucker of this sort of fascination with old cinema tricks, old cinema ways and putting it within the context of a modern film. And so because of these rules he set up for himself for this movie, the first visual effects crew they hired, he instantly fired because they kept being like, well, we can do this in a computer now. We can do this as a green screen. And he was like, no, we literally only get into the types of effects that would have existed in 1897, maybe 1900 if we're pushing it, maybe. And so he just decided in true Coppola fashion to replace the crew with his son, Roman Coppola, who became the second unit director and kind of head visual effects director of this movie. And at the time he was probably maybe his mid to late 20s, like not, you know, and not really a thing yeah. he's ever done before. But gosh, didn't he do a great job because this movie looks incredible and that's kind of what makes it so timeless and so beyond just an old Dracula movie or a 90s Dracula movie is that because it has this very, very distinct, unique look that no other movie at the time or since then, I feel, even has this. No, you're absolutely correct. This, to me, is like the ultimate... It's the like ultimate Roger Corman movie. Yes. It's the ultimate Dracula movie. To in a lot of ways, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. it's it's the ultimate horror movie. Like what the what is a horror movie? What what are these movies like? I would show that person this movie. Like this is what horror movies look like. How they how they make you feel. What they sound like. This is what they are supposed to be. And in a lot of ways, Coppola is trying to capture the like. The, the pure cinema that so many of the great silent directors were chasing to tell the story through purely uh, purely visuals. The visuals in this film are they're so important. There's so much work and effort has gone into them. But he is using everything. So he's using the, the dialogue and the performances and music and sound in <clears> addition <throat> to all of these camera tricks. And I don't think that it's trickery just for the sake of, uh, you know, art, arts for art's sake. I think it, it all works to create this uh, unsettling, you know, disturbing, scary <laughs> feeling and atmosphere. And, and none of the tricks look dated, even though these are all old, old, old style camera tricks. And tricks is, I think, the right term because so much of this stuff was used by magicians in the late 1800s, like a lot of early cinema was part of like magic shows and magicians. And so you'd have these crazy shots in this movie with models, with forced perspective. There's a shot of like uh, Jonathan Harker looking at his, uh, his journal and you see the train drive over it. And that's not done with just regular super imposition. It's just they made a giant book <laughs> Put the, put the camera there and then had a model train behind this giant book to get this shot and then ran the film through again like they used to do in the old days. Didn't use a computer or anything to, to superimpose it. And then filmed Dracula's eyes looking over and then you have it as one piece of film basically 
and it's just and it's just so crazy. And if anyone has the time, uh, the making of of this movie is just awesome. This show, at least the part where I mean, all of it's good, but the part where it's uh, going through how they did all the visual effects of this movie, it, it's just amazing. It's a lot of yeah, just running film through more than once to kind of get layers of images. There's a lot of stuff that he was working at in like Rumblefish, like the shot with the colored fish. Like now you would just, you know, key it in on a computer. But like with when we talk about Rumblefish, like that shot he literally shot one way and then rewound the film and then shot it again with the certain elements in place and he put it together. And that movie also had a lot of like actual rear projection with the clouds and all that. And this movie is like that times a million. Like every shot is amazing. There's like every type of... Like this movie is a great kind of history of like what old cinema was like, really. It's like a great guide to that because you have like shadow play, you have puppets, you have just... uh, every type of insane way to like make an effect like uh cool shots where it was clearly done backwards but then it's played forward I so love it, those so shots. it just looks eerie and strange there's something off about it but you can't quite tell what it is and none of it is done in a way where it takes it out of the movie you're not like oh they did this like you really you really get absorbed into the style of the movie there's stuff even i i noticed uh this time watching it that I hadn't noticed previous times, like when Harker is wandering through Dracula's castle, there are rats walking on the ceiling. <laughs> on the ceiling, yeah. And yeah, because Coppola had the idea that in Dracula's castle, like the laws of physics don't apply, which, yeah, would make it really, really spooky and allows for all the spooky stuff that happens in there, like rats walking on the ceiling. So they filmed. They turned the camera upside down, they filmed rats walking, they covered up uh, part of the, the frame so the film wouldn't be exposed. Then they rewound the film back and then filmed Keanu Reeves walking. And then that's how you got that shot. And it's the kind of <laughs> stuff that is like exciting to, to, to do, to think about. How, like, how did they do that? Yeah. It, it, was a real, it was a real trick. And he opens up a bottle and... It starts dripping backwards, starts yeah. dripping up to the ceiling. <laughs> I think it must have been so much fun. Like clearly a lot of work, but fun. And you just wish you just wish a director would do that again now, because I think people are too reliant on CGI and how easy yeah. it is to do everything like with a click of a mouse and just the amount of effort that they did to make this. And also this movie's entirely shot on sets. This is all made in California. They never set foot in Europe. And it's just all done <laughs> in this amazing, uh, just like these sets. And like I think Corman is a great uh, thing to bring up because we like that's where Coppola got a start. We we reviewed the Haunted Palace, Palace. yeah, Haunted Palace, um, and we talked about uh, was it the Terror? What was the, the other? Yeah, the Terror and, and Dementia Thirteen. And this has definitely a, a big Corman influence. That the colors, like the purples and the just the yeah, like it feels like it has that hammer feel, but also has that kind of Corman feel too, of sort of like using sets and and just like color and like being smart with sort of ideas to get what you want. So like the big battle scene with Flat at the beginning, it's kind of a lot of it's done in like silhouette, or you don't really have these giants. It's not like a the Lord of the Rings where you see a million people. Yeah, in the field. it's done in silhouette. Done in the... There's real actors in the foreground, and then yeah. like. Um... 
silhouette puppets, like paper uh, silhouette yeah. puppets. And it, that must have been all stuff he learned from Corman of like how to like use your imagination and ideas to get at a bigger idea. There's a great scene where uh, Dracula and uh, Mina are doing absinthe, and there's like clearly some sort of dancing going behind, but you just see shadows of it. And I guess uh, Coppola's original plan was to have no sets and have it just all be shadow and color and have the story just told through the costumes visually. And of course, the studio was like, "No, we're not. You have to have sets." But uh, it's it's just so exciting to watch. It's like every scene has a great idea behind, just sort of like a great idea of how to shoot it. It's just so fun, like from beginning to end. And it has just a really amazing state of the art effects. Also, like the makeup is so good. Like the old Gary Oldman, old Dracula face is great. When he turns into the giant bat, that makeup is that horrifying. Is that is horrifying. Okay, when I say like, like this is the ultimate horror movie, like what do you expect to find in a horror movie that's going to be really, really scary? That when he turns into that bat and says that Mina is his and he you know, curses God. <laughs> yeah, that part is... Really creepy. <laughs> it's really scary. Um, especially but, since Mina was just like getting it on with that character. <laughs> uh, and then I think the other big kind of technical thing of this movie is the costume design by, I'm going to say her name wrong and I apologize, uh, Io, Ieko Ishioka. I think it's just Iko Iko Ishioka. Ishioka. Who, before this, hadn't really done costume design. She had just been an art director, and she had worked on Mishima, the Paul Schrader film. Mm -hmm. And there was something about, I don't know if it was her art direction or what, where a couple was like, no, no, you're going to not be art director. You're going to do the costumes. And I think it's really smart and fascinating to have an art director be the costume designer because then now you have a very, very unique kind of set of costumes that are part of the emotions in the set in a way like it really is like the look the costumes to me are like the most striking and insane thing in this whole movie like starting with like the armor that Vlad wears at the beginning is like this insane bright red clunky terrifying almost looks like torture chamber sort of it looks outfit. it looks like the like a human that's been flayed it just looks like muscle without skin it's just like sinew <laughs> And yeah. tendons, and it's red, and his helmet has horns. He's supposed to be a dragon. Dra and it's Dracul is, of instantly course, dragon. scary looking. Like, if it was just a regular knight, which is probably how he actually dressed, it wouldn't yeah. be as scary. But instead, you have this creepy, creepy look to just even the armor. And then, like, his robe, when he's Dracula, the old man, like, this crazy, long, red robe and like before this we're used to just seeing Dracula like in all black and in a black cape and so giving these colors and these shapes to to him is, is very exciting and then he has this other robe he wears that is inspired by the paintings of Gustav Klimt mm -hmm. and he only wears it a couple times he wears it in, in my favorite uh, WTF what was that scene where Harker is wandering around the castle and then Dracula's tomb like breaks open, breaks apart, and he <laughs> he flings up like board stiff, just flings up, and there's a scream like <laughs> that Dracula is not making. 
And then he stands <laughs> like fully up and then cut to the next scene. What was that about? <laughs> Nobody knows. Did it scare you? Yeah. <laughs> it sure did. And uh, what's interesting too about her is that I guess she had designed the Japanese poster for Apocalypse Now. If you can find that. So like that, I don't know if Coppola knew that when he hired her, but that's just an interesting synchronicity going on there. Uh, the other striking <laughs> costumes for me are uh, Lucy's outfits when she's, um, the night that she's like called out of her room and she's in this like flowing red, uh, red nightgown, presumably. It's all like flowy silks blowing mm-hmm. in the wind. And after she's been bitten... And it's turning into a vampire. She's in her wedding dress. Which looks like a Gila monster or whatever. Like it has like almost like a lizardy sort of like, yeah, like the ones that have those kind of collars. Yeah, it's yeah. like a it, it looks almost like she has a big cone, like a flattened <laughs> out cone around her neck. But yeah, she's got this like lizard fan that would look really like creepy if it was a real wedding dress. And then that's what she wears like when she's a vampire. Worth noting, of course, the cinematographer is Michael Ballhouse, one of the great one of the great cinematographers of all time. Like not soon before this, did he? He did the he did Goodfellas, or pretty soon before this, he did Goodfellas. Yep, one of the greatest shot movies of all time. And he was originally a DP for Fassbender. So in the seventies, he kind of got to start doing all these Fassbender films, and then Scorsese took him in and he, a lot of the great Scorsese movies are shot by him like After Hours and Last Temptation of Christ and Culver Money and Age of Innocence and this and then it just in this movie it must have been so much fun to be a DP on a movie where you're allowed to do so many ideas and like really challenge yourself to do kind of something different and uh, there's even a scene that's shot on a really old camera there's a scene where they found a camera from like 1900 and it's a scene where Gary Oldman's walking through the streets and you can tell there's something a little off by it because it's shot by this they actually used an old old camera and shot the old way which is cool because like who does that like who can do that now you'd have to like go to the Smithsonian (laughs) get it so the movie looks amazing just because of all these elements uh, and the music's really good too. I'd never heard of this composer before. He um, had done. Um, he was a Polish composer. I'm, I, I'm assuming, based on the fact that he's done a lot of Roman Polanski movies, uh, and then all of his movies before this um, are in a language that uh, looks like Polish uh, to me. <laughs> And uh, the music's great. It almost sounds like at times to me I thought it was John Barry. It had kind of a John Barry sound, especially mm-hmm. like the love theme between Dracula. His name, by the way, I'm going to totally say this wrong because it must be Polish. He is Polish. Wojciech Kilar. That's the best I'm going to do on that, that one. That's about uh, what I would do. <laughs> and, uh, and he, had, before this, hadn't really done anything... Uh, you know, in America, it's a lot of Polish films, and this is sort of the first big non-Polish movie. But then after this, he, of course, he did, uh, like I said, stuff with Polanski. He did Death and the Maiden. He did um, The Ninth Gate. He did The Pianist. All great soundtracks. Uh, he also did the music uh, for We Own the Night. He did We Own the Night, uh, the 2007 Walking Phoenix movie now deceased but the music is so good and I think is this the first movie 
Were Coppola's dad didn't do the soundtrack? Is then his dad do Godfather Three or? Yeah, uh, I think I think so. Um, I don't remember exactly how this composer came to him, and I know that they had uh, some uh, difficulties or differences with how to use the music in the film. Like he wanted the composer just wanted to make his score, and and that was and that was it, and. You know, Coppola wanted to do it more the way you traditionally do a film score. So then what he ended up doing was taking what uh, the music that Kilar had composed and then seeing like where it would fit. And you'll have a lot of repeating motifs because of this throughout the film, which I think really works. This score is fucking amazing. I love this score. It is so grand and haunting and uh just portentous Mm -hmm. it's uh it's perfect it's perfect horror movie score i love it it's it's so moody it's great it's great so let's talk about some of the uh maybe we move on to breaking down some of these moments or talking about some of the moments yeah one scene that stuck out stuck out to me as very coppola was the marriage between there's a scene where where harker and and mina Lena, Mina, Mina, get married, and it's edited with scenes of just Dracula having a fit and killing people. <laughs> and it reminded me very much of the Godfather. Was it a baptism? Yeah. And they're cutting to sort of like his, the Corleone rise of power as they're getting like their kid. They're taking off some of their the rival gangs as if while juxtaposed and cutting back to this you know, this very holy ceremony in a church uh, and so that that scene felt very Coppola uh, to me like I couldn't help but think of that part in The Godfather uh, funny enough supposedly Keanu actually got married <laughs> accidentally <laughs> did you ever read about that? yeah yeah there's a real priest <laughs> there was, they used an actual like Greek Orthodox priest and he performed the whole ceremony so not legally were they married but in the eyes of the Greek, of, Orthodox, of the Greek Church. Orthodox Church they are still to this day married and I guess that is a thing that they because Keanu and Winona are still cool with each other still friends how can they not be they both seem like two of the nicest people and I guess they still will occasionally refer to each other as husband and wife jokingly, uh, which is great. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> but, but that scene felt very Coppola to me, as does all the kind of meal. He loves people sitting around a table having a meal, whether that meal is absinthe over a sugar cube or uh, some awkward dinner in Dracula's house. Um. <laughs> I uh, have to talk about this amazing prologue of Prince Vlad fighting the uh, invading Turks and then cursing God <laughs> because it is so uh, it is so like unlike the rest of the film but it still fits it's very to me that's a very Coppola scene in the way that you have the wedding scene in The Godfather which is just a fun way to do an exposition dump yeah. Like, here's who everybody is, here's their relations to each other, and now we can get on with the rest of the movie. And this is kind of the same thing. Here's the backstory of Dracula, and here's actually what makes him a sympathetic character. We introduced to him as a warrior knight, his 
homeland is being invaded, so he's called upon to defend his homeland, and he fights off the invading army, and then rides home to find that his wife has killed herself because the uh, Turks, as they were leaving, <clears throat> shot an arrow with a letter into the castle saying that Vlad had been killed, so she throws herself into the river, and as he's like reading this, there's like superimposition of her just like dropping down the side of the castle very like old school <laughs> subtle like tricks that you might miss if you're actually just not looking at that part of the frame it's very cool yeah and then the priest who is anthony hopkins <laughs> in what i assume is his natural hair he's almost has like a captain caveman kind of look just like all big hair and he's speaking transylvanian saying like uh you know she killed herself. Her soul is damned. There's nothing I can do. Why do you think that that is Anthony Hopkins? Are we supposed to think that that is Van Helsing's great, 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 great grandfather? Or is that just them having fun being like, well, we already have this amazing actor. Let's put him in in a cameo as another character. I think it's them that... having fun. But I also think it's this thing of like this story is not done. Like it is like these characters repeating through history trying to find each other yeah. and complete their story just like there's no real explanation or reason as to why uh, Mina looks like Vlad's wife yeah she's you know, not a descendant of... it just she just does there's something about it yeah and I think because Van Helsing represents uh, like knowledge uh, like the law uh, you know science he's like he she shows up he he looks at the evidence knows what's going on and then figures out a solution and he's like this is what we have to do these are the rules and this uh priest is the one that lays down the law which is like <laughs> oh your wife she killed herself her soul is damned Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. And yeah. Dracula, Prince Vlad, says what I think maybe anybody, if you're being really honest, with anybody that has had a relationship with God has said at some point in their life, no matter what has happened to them, like, this is my reward? Like, I serve God and this is my reward? Yeah. And then he takes the big, he throws down the crucifix knocks down the priest takes the sword stabs the cross and it bleeds and the statue bleeds that is so scary and for a seven <laughs> i was like seven when this movie came out my mom wanted to watch it because she loves horror movies and vampires so i was watching it with her and i was scared <laughs> but it was also just like this big like whoa wait like dracula like worked for like he was with the church like he worked for god and then he felt betrayed by god and that's how uh, you know he became part of how he became a vampire yeah and i just i love that that it ties into me being you know a catholic and being a catholic little kid watching this movie seeing it tie into uh into religious religious lore religious history and even when Dracula dies at the end, at the end of the movie, he says it is accomplished, which is supposedly Jesus's last, last words, words yeah. on the cross, uh, which you can see in Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, and to me, those are the three main characters: Dracula, Mina, and Van Helsing, and they've found each other now, all again. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, crucifixes don't work in this, I don't think, but garlic does because there's a scene where they put garlic around uh, Lucy's neck, right? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice to know that garlic does work. If there's ever a vampire in your house, garlic yeah. is the go-to one, maybe not a crucifix so Like much. Van Helsing, he holds up a cross to Lucy and forces her back into her coffin. He holds up a cross to Dracula and Dracula sets it on fire. <laughs> but he, uh, Van Helsing is able to get a communion wafer to burn into Mina's head, into her forehead. So that works. So maybe it just depends on what level of vampire you are. Yeah. <laughs> and clearly and clearly, they don't deny that beheadings definitely work in this movie. They'd be the done with the vampire. There's a lot of beheadings. Uh, the scene that we mentioned earlier where they all go to kill Lucy, they, be, they stake her and behead her just to make sure. And I can't help when watching that scene not to think of the scene from Dracula, Dead and Loving It, the Mel Brooks parody mm-hmm. of more or less this movie. Where they stab a stake in the in Lucy's chest and the blood just keeps going and it doesn't stop and it goes on to comedic effect. Uh, it's pretty. It's, <laughs> it's pretty violent. Like this, you know, it's it's of course an exaggeration in Mel Brooks's movie, but it's pretty violent. And Carrie Elwes lets out this scream when he does it. That's really uh, because that was his fiance. Yeah. <laughs> And then there's a great part uh, where Van Helsing beheads all three of Dracula's brides and takes their heads and just tosses it off the cliff into like the into the the river or whatever and shouts Dracula. <laughs> and I guess the beheading of Dracula at the end by Mina was George Lucas's suggestion. I guess that wasn't in the mm. script. And then that was the note that uh, Coppola's pal George gave was like, "You should have her behead." Behead Dracula, and she does. So, <laughs> uh, pretty gory for an R-rated movie. I guess the DVD. There's a version that has like extra gore. Have you seen that? There's a version you have. Like, there's one that's longer, or that has longer scenes. I don't know. There's. Uh, um, I mean, the one I have. I don't think it's extra. It's two hours and seven minutes, which I think is the actual, the official runtime of the film. Yeah. There's deleted scenes on there, which. Aren't really any more gory. There's an alternate uh, beginning. What the heck is that? Uh, uh, Dracula, Prince Vlad, uh, tears up the the church a little bit more, and instead of screaming like he he screams his way to becoming a vampire, this one <laughs> he just like screams really loud, and then uh, the title card shows up: Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm. And then the alternate one. He screams, and then you see uh, Elisabetta, Winona Ryder's Elisabetta, on the floor. And the floor, the whole church, just fills up with blood until it covers her face. And Winona Ryder is completely covered with blood. And then that dissolves into Mina getting her hair washed. Interesting. What are your thoughts on the uh, Annie Lennox song during the end credits? That was, that was unexpected. It's it's so unexpected. I love it. I love Me how too. unexpected it is. Yeah. I love that song. That was my like like the the in the inner gothy kid in me it was like <laughs> one day I'll meet someone that makes me feel like this. <laughs> I love it. I just I I feel like that's not a thing in movies anymore. You have like that was such an '80s thing, an early '90s and a '90s thing, like like where you'd have a movie that had a certain type of music, say like Aladdin, and then you had your end credit song that is done in a more modern 
like the movie would have a more orchestral or more traditional sounding score, and then you'd have your your hit song at the end, or like yeah. uh, Legend with the Brian Ferry song at the end. Uh, and like this one's no exception. And I guess Godfather Three kind of did that too, because you had that Harry Connick Jr. song at the end. But that right. still was classy, and I could see it fit into the world of Godfather Three. Whereas this is like totally a modern sounding, like you know, Annie Lennox. It's modern sounding. Uh, Annie Lennox is like the perfect choice because she just there's something naturally spooky about her voice, and you know she's singing. Uh, your song is appropriately titled "Love Song for a Vampire," <laughs> and there's like, a, like electric. I was gonna say electric flutes. It sounds like a keyboard was set to flutes and is being played like that. So it all sounds very uh, uncanny. And there's if you listen to it with headphones, like I have many times, because <laughs> I have that song on my computer and my iPhone, of course. Uh, there's a bass drum that hits like like someone's foot has slipped off the bass drum, so it's like bup, 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 and it sounds like a beating heart. Mm. Hmm. Great, great song. I love it. I agree. <laughs> and it's and it comes as a surprise. The film ends with the orchestral score, and if you just keep watching the credits, there's a spooky, gothy love song there for you. <laughs> Um, one thing, uh, one thing I couldn't help but think about uh, when watching this movie, and, and my my wife agreed. She actually brought it up, and I was already thinking it. So we both agreed that the movie that this reminds us of the most, reminds me of the most, is not a vampire movie, but is David Lynch's Elephant Man. And I think it's not just because it's around the same era, because I think Elephant Man is also late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Does that seem right? And it's not just because Anthony Hopkins is in both of them, but there's just something about making a movie that in a way is very traditional and classically Hollywood at a time when that wasn't cool to do, which Elephant Man was 80 and this was 92. But also both filmmakers sort of like putting in and sneaking in all these experimental filmmaking tools and elements as well. So like you're already making a movie that's in another type of Hollywood that doesn't exist anymore, but then you're also adding in your sort of like go-to, like the, your experiment, because you are, like we've talked about this before, Coppola, what is at heart, I feel, an experimental filmmaker. He is not a traditional filmmaker. He wants to be and has always been kind of an art filmmaker, experimental filmmaker, much like Dave, David Lynch, who's definitely more extreme and more definitely an experimental filmmaker. But I just kept thinking of, of Elephant Man a lot while watching this because of that. Another movie that I think is great. Um, and another movie that just feels sort of timeless and of its time at the same time. Check out The Elephant Man if you haven't seen it. It's, uh. a, beautiful, it's a beautiful film. <laughs> it's a wonderful film. It's one of those, like, I watched it for the first time a couple of years ago and wondered why I had never seen it before. Yeah. And I think Lynch, like Coppola, they're really good at sneaking in, just like smuggling in uh, crazier ideas and, and, and traditional things, you know, whether it's network television or Dracula or, you know, Elephant Man or Dune or whatever, like they're, they can't help but want to try to be different and do something different than what a normal person you know, a non 
adventurous filmmaker would, would do with how to tell a story. Because you could have very easily, with this and Elephant Man, told a very straightforward movie, won a bunch of Oscars, still be respected. But the fact that like they both push push themselves to try to do new things and interesting things and different things, even in a movie that doesn't ask of it, um, I, I just really admire that about both David Lynch and Francis Ford Coppola. It's great. They can't help but <laughs> like put themselves into into yeah. their movies, no matter yeah. what, no matter what their their subject matter is. Yeah. Um, another thing I noticed while we'll watching in credits, Mike Mignola is listed as an illustrator, the creator of Hellboy. Oh, right. Uh, and but he's in the credits as an illustrator. What does illustrator mean? I don't quite know. Maybe it means matte painting because there certainly is a lot of matte paintings or uh does that mean uh made a puppet (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i thought that was really an interesting it was interesting to see this is the first credit of illustrator that i've seen for him like you know after this he's sort of doing stuff more or less with his own comics in a movie whether it's hellboy or whatever but like that, I thought that was an interesting credit to, to see. So Dracula is a story. It's a novel that you can take all, you know, you can analyze it. For some people get assigned it in schools. <laughs> yeah. uh, I never did. My schools were not that cool. Uh, all sorts of themes about, like, it's about, uh, you know, capitalism or imperialism. Or it's about uh, uh, xenophobia, you know, the stranger coming and he's going to take your women. And all that, I think is here if you want it to be i don't i don't think coppola picked a theme and decided like this is what the movie will represent he he made you know the best dracula he could the one he thought uh most uh most clearly put on screen the the events of the novel Mm -hmm. and i think so then you can watch the movie and pick out these themes and subtexts if you'd like, but it's not really emphasizing those, and I think that's where some of the criticisms at the time and now come that it's just like an exercise in style, or you know, it's all uh, it's all show and there's not much substance to it. But uh, I mean, I think there is, and for me, being uh, you know a, a Catholic like I am, and this one being maybe the most religious Dracula. <laughs> Like that's that's what I pick up on, the whole like like maybe the villain has a point, because Dracula is a monster. He's yeah. still like killing people, and doing all this bad stuff. Uh, like, but he yeah he, he has a point. You know, he he was wronged. He was definitely wronged <laughs> by God. <laughs> he has a reason to be upset. Yeah. Uh, and that's like that's kind of. Um, what I pick up on uh, this, like fear of diseases and, mm-hmm. and stuff, uh, and the powers that a person may have over someone else. I feel like Lucy is a great character. She's played by Sadie Frost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, haven't talked about her. That she's she really gets good. The, uh, she gets the introducing credit, introducing yeah. Sadie Frost, um, and she's the more like outgoing, flamboyant of the two between her and Mina. And she, in some ways, is already like a vampire when she's alive. 
she is very seductive and she like casts a spell over these three friends uh seward dr seward quincy and um uh, carrie elwes is the aristocrat uh lord mm-hmm. arthur um and but they're all friends like and they're all very supportive of each other still and in the novel Lucy does make some kind of comment like why can't I have all three <laughs> yeah uh, and yeah it's great she like uh, we we first meet the the Texan who is like drawn to her and just like mystified uh, by her and then uh Seward Richard E. Grant is great playing like a lovesick nerd who like trips as soon as he sees her. <laughs> that scene is great when she's sort of like suiting all three at the same or like with all three at the same time, or and this is all being witnessed by Mina. Like she's watching her friend like go to the one, and then the other guy comes in and she goes to that, and the other guy goes to that, and she's just sort of playing all three of them. Um, that is a really fun scene. I have to talk about Anthony Hopkins is. Dr. Abraham Van Helsing, <laughs> who is the most insane character. <laughs> he seems really like, like it's funny because at first he seems like a normal guy, you know, in terms of like, I'm here to help. And then as he starts figuring out what's going on, he gets giddy, he gets excited <laughs> despite all these terrible things. <laughs> going on and then he like he starts getting everyone kind of wrapped up in his insanity especially the three men that like were all in love with Lucy he just gets so excited about the fact that like it's vampires he's dealing with them he knows how to deal with them and he's they're gonna help him and there's that great bit where that's the funeral for Lucy and they're talking and he just like very nonchalantly is like I know how deeply you loved her that is why you must trust me and believe believe how can I believe I want you to bring me before nightfall a set of post-mortem knives. An autopsy? Lucy? No, 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 not exactly. I just want to cut off her head and take out her heart. <laughs> Seward's like, oh, and runs away. And Anthony <laughs> Hopkins then does a, ah, uh, uh, damn it. Now, he is having a great time. And this is like on the, he, like right after him winning the Oscar for Silence of the Lambs, like literally the next year. There's a little bit of like yeah. Hannibal Lecter yeah. in this Dr. Seward. When he first meets Mina, he grabs her and starts, he's like, ah, like young lovers. And he's he, like smelling her he, face. Yeah, he dances with her and then he like smells her face. That's something Anthony Hopkins came up with when they were doing rehearsals. And you can see him, like, he figured it out, like, I'm going to do this, but then didn't tell Winona Ryder in the making of footage. And Winona Ryder then walks away with the, like, what a weird look, <laughs> look on her face. And he's like, uh, the way, and Anthony Hopkins explained that, like, well, Van Helsing knows that she's just been with Dracula, so he wants to smell her. Yeah. <laughs> to smell Dracula. And he, when, uh, uh, Mina finds out that Harker is alive and she's going to go marry him and Dracula cries his face off literally. Yeah. Yeah, he literally cries his face off and turns back into like a monster and Anthony Hopkins is looking through a big book, <laughs> the big book of vampire, <laughs> vampire, and realizes that the vampire is Dracula and he's like, the cause, the search of my whole life. <laughs> like, he has been pursuing Dracula for his whole life, which makes me feel like that's why he played the priest 
in that scene he's like represents whatever that priest represented and he's got to play it out play out his part he gets like really yeah he gets really frisky and then when mina turns she's under dracula's spell she's like half vampire and they're camped outside of dracula's castle and she then gets like kind of possessed by the brides or by dracula and then tries to seduce van helsing and van helsing goes right for it man there's no like oh i can't i can't he just goes right in for the kiss and then then's like oh no 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 i can't i can't do this and that's when he uh burns her forehead with a communion wafer yeah <laughs> true nut <laughs> Yeah, uh, he's a great Van Helsing. And he can also maybe teleport. That's I brought this up earlier when, after they uh, they give Lucy a blood transfusion, and in the book it's very clear that all three of her suitors gave gave blood to mm-hmm. Lucy, and it's very innuendo-y about how like their blood is in in her mm-hmm. now, and that's not really played up here. But then they're out in the garden, and Seward says, like, well, what do you mean? Like, uh, something flew in, like, took her blood and flew away? And Van Helsing says, yeah, why not? <laughs> like, you're a scientist, Jack. Do not let your eyes see or your ears hear that which you cannot account for. <laughs> and then he lists all the things that science can't account for, like mesmerism, hypnotism, astral bodies blah 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 and his voice fades and he disappears and they're like where'd he go where'd he go and they walk around and then he steps from behind from behind a tree off in the background just smoking his cigar like i guess he teleported (laughs) well you know they can't explain it yeah there's a lot which leads me to uh maybe the final thing i want to talk about this film is that not everything in this movie makes sense. And you know what? That's okay. <laughs> because it's a horror movie. I don't need my horror movies to make sense. I just need them to be scary. <laughs> the Shining, wonderful, maybe the best horror movie. Makes no sense. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> Suspiria doesn't make sense. They're scary. Why does that watermelon start laughing in Hasu, the Japanese film? I don't know, but it's scary. <laughs> the watermelon just starts laughing. <laughs> Yeah, I like, and I like that it doesn't explain. I like this movie doesn't explain, like, why is Dracula's shadow its own entity? Who, I don't know. He's Dracula. It just, it just is. We don't. And an explanation wouldn't make it less scary. Like the the best scariest things in movies are the unexplained. Like that's why kind of older horror movies are better than like the remakes. Like if you don't know what's going on with Michael Myers, that's scary. But in the Rob Zombie version, where you see him as a kid, and this is why, because his parents are abusive mean, home. That's yeah. not scary anymore. But it's more scarier when he may be supernatural or not, and you don't know. And I think this movie does a lot of that great sort of. You don't need to explain it. Just like why are the rats upside down? Who cares? It's scary. It's weird. We're dealing like with vampires and Dracula, so why not keep going into weirder territories? Like why does this Dracula able to turn into a green smoke and a pile of rats? And a giant bat and a wolf and he, he can teleport too or he can do whatever. And it doesn't lay it all out as to why. Or like you said, like, you know, is 
is is is Anthony Hopkins supposed to be the same character as Winona Ryder? We're like, no, they don't tell you, and it doesn't matter. You still get caught up in it and and upset by it and excited by it. So it is no surprise that uh, Iko Ishioka won best costumes, best costume design at the Oscars. Oh yeah, let's talk year. about the 1993 Oscars uh, awards given to movies for 1992. This movie won. This movie is nominated for four Oscars, won three, which has got to be the most for a couple of movies since. What was the last time he won that many? Like we talked about how his movies were nominated for Oscars still. Like Yo Tucker had an actor, yeah. and there was a few. I think a few nominations. I think for maybe some of Godfather Two might be the last time like, a Coppola movie did so well at the Oscars. Godfather Three before this had nominations, didn't but win didn't any. win any. But this one, costume design, best effects, comma, sound effects editing for Tom C. McCarthy and David E. Stone, which is awesome because like I love like the sound, especially in Dracula's Castle, where you can just hear eerie things in the background. It's so good. And then it also won best makeup, which totally makes sense for Greg Canham, Michelle Burke, and Matthew W. Mungle. And it was nominated and lost, surprisingly, Best Art Direction, Set Direction for Thomas E. Sanders, Garrett E. Lewis. It lost to Howard's End was the winner. Uh, another Anthony Hopkins movie. But let, let's look at 93 Oscars. I always like it because you're the kind of the Oscar aficionado of, of the world. Uh, this was a very interesting year for Oscars. I remember watching this one. This was the big year of Unforgiven. This was sort of yeah. like Clint Eastwood really truly being respected as a filmmaker for the first time you know not just making movies that did well or that were iconic as if that's not enough but this is the first time he really got like accolades for making a movie with with unforgiven but this was a big year so this her best picture this year you had scent of a woman howard's end a few good men the crying game and unforgiven which is then reflected in Best Director, with the exception of Rob Reiner did not get Best Director, but Robert Altman did for The Player. Also an incredible movie. Um, Best Actor went to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Nominated was Robert Downey Jr. for Chaplin, Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven, Stephen Ray for The Crying Game, and Denzel Washington for Malcolm X. Man, what a year. Actress Emma Thompson for Howard's End won. But nominated was Catherine Deneuve for Indochine, Indochina, Indochine, however you say that. Mary McDonald for Passion Fish, Michelle Pfeiffer for Love Field. Don't know what that is. I do not know. Uh, Susan Sarandon for Lorenz's Oil. Supporting actor, Gene Hackman for Unforgiven. Great performance. Jay Davidson for The Crying Game. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> way to spoil that, Oscars. Come on. Uh, Jack Nicholson for Few Good Men, Al Pacino for Glengarry Glen Ross, and David Paymer for Mr. Saturday Night. It's funny, I met David Paymer once. I, was, I had the honor of having a, a dinner with him. And the best story he told was for when he was nominated for an Oscar. So he was nominated for an Oscar for Mr. Saturday Night. He's great in it. And this was sort of like a big deal for him because no one really knew who David Paymer was before this. He was in movies before this, like The In-Laws and things like that. But this is like the first real recognized performance by him and he went to the oscars 
and he wanted to meet everyone he was nominated with just to introduce himself, like at like the pre-cocktail parties or whatever. He meets Jack Nicholson, who totally brushes him off and is just like, get the fuck away from me. Who are you? What? Like, <laughs> And I can just imagine like little David Payne being like, hey, Mr. Nicholson, I'm so honored to meet you. And he'd be like, what? Who are you? Get out of here. But then he was all sad about Jack Nicholson blowing him off. And then behind him, he heard, David, David Paymer. And it was Al Pacino ran up to him, gave him a big hug and said, I love Mr. Saturday Man. You were so good in Mr. Saturday Man. Not the name of the movie, but it doesn't matter. And Al Pacino was congratulated for how good he was. It was really warm and humble and great. So it's nice to know that Al Pacino, you know, Respects his fellow nominees, unlike Jack Nicholson, who couldn't give two shits. Uh, anyways, back to his supporting actress, Marissa Tomei for My Cousin Vinny. So, so deserved and great. Good choice. But you also had Judy Davis for Husbands and Wives, also great. Joan Plowright for Enchanted April, Vanessa Redgrave for Howard's End, and Miranda Richardson for Damage. Original screenplay, of course, went to The Crying Game, which was like the big deal, the independent movie of the year, big twist at the end. Um, Also nominated was Husbands and Wives, Woody Allen, Lorenzo's Oil, George Miller, and Nick Einwright, Passion Fist, John Sayles, and Unforgiven, David Webb Peoples. Adapted screenplay, Howard's End, Beating Out, Enchanted April, The Player, River Runs Through It, Scent of a Woman. Don't need to go into some of the smaller ones because the Oscars don't even care to broadcast about them anymore. Why do we need to talk about them? Crazy, original song, the Amy Lennox song wasn't even nominated. Yeah, I mean... Which is a really good song. I mean, granted, this is the year of Aladdin. Like, I'd expect, Uh, expect, like, what was the year? Aladdin, like, okay, yeah, of course, Aladdin's going to win. It's great, great music by uh, Alan Menken. Yeah. And lyrics by Tim Rice, you know, legendary Alan Menken. Uh, But, yeah, I thought... The the score and the song would be in there, you know. Uh, yeah, it's crazy that the score wasn't nominated. We, I haven't seen what won yet. But the original song, won, A Whole New World won, of course. But like Friend Like Me also nominated. Like they could have just filled the category with just five songs from Aladdin, honestly. But they had a song from The Bodyguard, I Have Nothing. Run to You, also from The Bodyguard. So this is The, the Bodyguard was a big deal soundtrack. But then you had a song from the Mambo Kings. Ah. But then, so then we have, so sound effects editing, Bram Stoker's directly won it, beating out Aladdin and Steven Seagal's Under Siege, Oscar-nominated film. Under Siege is an Oscar-nominated film. A great movie. I had no idea that was, that is an Oscar-nominated film. A Steven Seagal movie was nominated for an Oscar. Think about that. I had no idea. <laughs> but deserve it. That movie's fucking great. <laughs> uh, sound, different from sound effects, uh, went to The Last of Mohicans. Great movie. Beating out a lad and a few good men. Under Siege again. Multi-Oscar nominated film. Steven Seagal's Under Siege in Unforgiven. Art direction, we already talked about that, but what, what did else did lose that? So Howard Zen won, Bram Stoker lost. Also that year, Chaplin lost. Toys, a movie that was not liked at the time, but still nominated for an Oscar. I mean, it's still a good-looking movie. <laughs> Very distinctive look. 
in Unforgiven. Cra- really crazy to me that D- Dracula wasn't nominated for cinematography. That makes no sense to me at all. Uh, a river's a river runs through it. One uh, shots of rivers and people fishing. Outdoorsy. But so Hoffa is on there. Totally fine movie. Is it better looking than Bram Stoker's Dracula? I've seen Hoffa recently. You, was there and, any shots that are stuck in your head about you know Teamsters protesting or anything? Not really. Like, Howard's End, which does look great. The Lover. Don't know what that is. Oh, that's a movie with um, with Jane March. It's a period film set in like uh, Southeast Asia, I think. Mm. And Unforgiven, and then Makeup, which Dracula won, beating Hoffa again to make Jack Nicholson sort of not really look like Jimmy Hoffa. And Batman Returns, which had great makeup yeah. for the Penguin. Costume design, you know, we said one. Beating Enchanted April, Howard's End, Malcolm X, and Toys yet again. Um, film editing, Unforgiven One. Beating Basic Instinct, The Crying Game, Few Good Men, The Player. Visual effects went to, not this movie, even though the visual effects were amazing in this movie, but went yeah. to the more CGI but still great looking Death Becomes Her. Oh, okay. I mean, this, the, the digital effects were state-of-the-art and amazing in that movie. So if anything were to win... I would rather have that over Alien 3, which was nominated, which personally I think the effects suck in that movie. They look awful. I mean, it's so dark. <laughs> you know, the movie's so dark, cause, so that way you won't see the effects. And Batman Returns, which had the cool penguins in it. Uh, honorary awards that year went to Fellini, Audrey Hepburn, and Elizabeth Taylor. Man, what a year of... That's a great... That's great. All three well-deserved people. So that that's a crazy, interesting... A lot of variety... But the other than Unforgiven, Bram Stoker's Dracula tied with Howard's End for the most wins that year with three. Mm. Beating Aladdin, which only won two. So uh, definitely, like, that's a really good Oscars for Coppola, even though he personally wasn't nominated. But the fact that he can make a movie still after a decade of being in debt and after kind of becoming a joke to a lot of people, like making a movie that is number one in the box office, has an impact on pop culture... And wins three Oscars. Like, that's a good win for, for Coppola. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, this is a movie that gets written off a lot, like, then and now. Because it's like, oh, just Dracula again. Like, oh, it's that one. It's the one where they're in period costumes. <laughs> but, I mean, if you really watch it, like, it's... It's dazzling. It's undeniably dazzling. And it when I find out that like yeah, it won it won Oscars for the costumes and the makeup and uh, the sound effects. Like oh yeah, that all makes sense. Yeah. It all makes sense. What else would have won that? Like I feel like this is like that's what this movie is. It's the best part of the really, movie. especially for me, especially yeah. with the costumes. It's it's it'd be a movie that like when that comes out, just everyone else like stop trying. Like <laughs> uh, this is what's going to win costumes. Yeah, it's how I felt when uh, I was watching Black Panther. Yeah, and they arrived at the uh, the mountain people mm-hmm. and like I think it's Winston Duke uh, when they get into his like chamber. Like okay, this is this is gonna win. This is going to win. Everyone else, stop. Stop. 
It's just I lo- I love that it's just it's Coppola could have very easily fallen into the story that everyone was saying that he's given up and that he was done. And you can still tell that story even with Godfather Three being a good movie and up for Oscars of like oh he's just rehashing some shit again. But he still still is really trying to push himself as a filmmaker and still like trying to make very interesting movies. And the, like the, I really think this is one of my favorite Coppola movies. Like it's honestly top five for me. Like I like this as much as the best of his '70s stuff. Like I think this is like his best movie since uh, Rumblefish. I uh, you know I yeah. think I agree with you there. <laughs> it's real. Like I've seen this movie a lot now. I've seen it a few times. Funny, I didn't see this when it came out because I was too young and my mom didn't want to watch it despite being obsessed with Dracula. She was turned off by the R rating, or I don't know what it was. But, like, I I just think this movie's so entertaining. Like, there's not a moment of this movie that I'm bored with or that my mind wanders. Like, I, when I rewatched this for this, I was, like, so into it. I was so happy to be watching it. And I would gladly watch it again, like, anytime soon. Because it's just, it's just that solid of a picture. Yeah, I, I, I really love this movie. I love watching this movie. I've seen it. I don't know how many times one of my one of my best friends uh, then and now, but uh, when we were in high school and college, like he loved uh, Dracula, the character, and vampire stories, and we'd watch this movie a lot. And if people were over, he'd put it on, and so I watched it a whole lot. And we would quote it to each other. We would do the Anthony Hopkins lines because <laughs> they're hilarious, and. Uh, yeah, so that I saw it a lot that way. I did see this movie, not in theaters, but when it was on video, because my mom wanted to watch it, and I just wanted to, like, be around her. So mm-hmm. I, like, watched the movie with my, like, hands uh, covering my eyes <laughs> for most of it. And she was, like, explaining things to me, and, you know, explaining to me how this is, like, a tragic Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's so a lot of my... Some of my early memories are of watching movies that I was way too young for with my mom who explained to me what was going on in the movies and why and why this was bad or this was good and this is this is one of those movies and yeah so then I watched it in college I just and it finally got a decent uh, home video release a DVD blu-ray release for longest time it was on video as just like a DVD you just put in and it starts playing the movie. There was no like menu or anything. Was it one of those ones where you had to turn over? I think so. I think it might have been. Uh, I forget what movie I had. I think it was like Goodfellas DVD, the early one I had, where you had to like... It you just stopped. It. it just stopped. Yeah. It did not even at a point that made any sense at all. It was just sort of like it just stopped. And yeah. you had to turn it over like a record, like it was basically a replica of a laserdisc, because that was the thing, the main shitty thing about laserdisc was laserdisc looked so good, but then you had to actually get up every thirty minutes and flip it over, like, you know, like a record, and like yeah, that early Bram Stoker DVD just sucked, and uh, but the but the Blu-ray looks amazing. Blu-ray looks good. It has all the special features, great, uh, great commentary. Features. Yeah, it looks great, and I. One of the first things I bought after I graduated college, I just walked in the Best Buy and saw that it had 
Yeah, I've been finally put out in a special edition DVD, so I bought it and then I watched it a lot right after I graduated <laughs> college. And I never get tired of watching it. I never yeah. get tired of watching it. I watched yeah. it. We were originally going to record this podcast earlier this month. <laughs> I, so I watched it then. Then life happens. Uh, sorry about that. Everyone gives you podcasts week to week. They just pile up, okay? So we'll we'll be in there. We'll be there. Here we are. We're not adding to your pile. Uh, and so now at the end of May, we're recording the episode. I watched it again last night, beginning to end, and I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. It was still, and it, and there was a very very bad thunderstorm last mm-hmm. night. It oh was yeah. Perfect weather to watch to watch Dracula and to listen to that Annie Lennox song. <laughs> Man, uh, no, it's been a pleasure revisiting this. This I feel uh, is one of the highlights I think of doing this of this show was doing this this episode. I was really looking forward to it. So now we're in an interesting place with Coppola because he's debt free. He has a hit financially and awardly. <laughs> Not so and much. He made this film on time and, and on budget. On time and on budget. Play, you know, yeah. And so he can do whatever he wants. And the next episode, he chooses to do Jack, the much maligned mm-hmm. uh, Robin Williams film Jack, uh, starring Robin Williams and Bill Cosby. Uh, I, I've seen it once. It's good. I actually mm-hmm. like it. Uh, but a lot of people don't like that movie. Uh, it's very hated. Uh, as a couple of movies go, or as movies go in general, but I'm excited to <laughs> revisit uh, Jack. Uh, yeah, I'm excited that, to see it again and see what is going on with all of that because I'm I've only seen it once <laughs> in the theaters with wow. all my friends. Wow, in the theater, I yeah. did not see it in the theater. Um, but yeah, that's our next one. We're now in the 90s with Coppola. He did not make many movies in the 90s. Definitely less than he did in the 80s and 70s. Uh, only three. but And we're already one movie in those three. And we're kind of, I feel, in sort of the home stretch of the end, sadly. Or not sadly, if you're sick of hearing about Coppola. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there, There's a definite know. shift in his career. Like, after this... And then, like, a shift again a shift after again. Yeah. The Rainmaker. Yes, uh, for sure. Like, we're kind of in this little interesting Hollywood pocket, and then we'll shift again to, like, a more independent filmmaker uh, again. Him going back to independent film again after many decades of not. So uh, I'm excited, yeah, to do Jack, and hopefully we'll get to that out sooner than we did this one. And who knows, maybe that'll come out before the offer is done. It just depends on life and everything. But we look for Jack and look for the offer hopefully coming out in June. So Yeah. Well, uh, you can find us online. Uh, we're on Twitter at the Director's Wall. You can email us, uh, directorswall at gmail.com. Uh, Brian, you have uh, another podcast. I do about movies. Yeah, the world is wrong podcast. What I do, which I do with Andros Jones. Uh, we've just wrapped season two, so we've just recently had come out our kind of end episode of the season where we talk kind of about sort of a general talk about sort of how the season went and sort of what's going to happen going forward. Taking a little bit of a break. Over the summer, so hey, that's a great time to catch up on this podcast, uh, uh, the the director's wall, because there'll be no new world is wrong until 
question mark, September, October, somewhere in the early autumn. We're just t- it's good to take a little break uh, once in a while, like how we do between episodes. <laughs> Months in between episodes. But I'm hoping that we'll do more episodes of Directors Wall throughout the summer. I feel like I'll be less busy, less getting COVID, <laughs> which is what <laughs> happened last time delaying this. And uh, yeah, get wrap up Coppola uh, hopefully by the end of this year, I think, and then we'll on to the next one there's no uh, there's an amazing amount of directors in this world that would be interesting to cover uh, well I guess that closes the big book of vampires <laughs> <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula Dracula <laughs> oh, I, I love it I love the accents they're so crazy I love it alright uh, well uh, I shit. I don't have a pun for our next movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we will see you again uh, at the multiplex for Jack.